Father, we declare again this evening that your name is beautiful and there is no one and nothing that compares with you. Father, we thank you that you lead us, that you guide us as we build our lives with you. Father, we thank you for your ever presence with us, even now. And Lord, as we now continue to worship you and as we meditate on your word, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be present here with us, that you would continue to guide us as we seek to find your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jesse, for leading worship for us this evening so beautifully. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers out there. I hope that if you are not a mother, that you showed your appreciation to your mother for all that she does for you today. And if you didn't do it yet, there are still many days of lockdown for you to do something special for her in. Now this evening we are starting with a new series. And we are going to look at the life of the early church. And we are going to try to do that by looking at certain things through the book of Acts. Now this should give us insight into how God started to build his church and what and why the church is and how the church lived and worshipped God. And then also very importantly to see what that means for us today. It's going to take us a few weeks to move through and there I don't believe is any way that we will be able to do justice to all of the details that exist in the story of the early church. But I trust and I hope that we will all find encouragement, that we would be challenged and simply just get some deeper insight into our history as the church. Now this evening we will be starting by looking at the birth of the church. And in doing so we will be reading from Acts chapter 2, and we will be reading the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. And this is what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This here is a picture of what is believed to be, at least according to tradition, the site of the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples as well as it is believed to be the place where the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. It's called the Senechal, and it's located in the old part of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. The building itself has changed ownership and changed over the centuries and has been at one point a church. It was the very first church. And then it was a mosque, and it was even at one point in time a synagogue. 
Unfortunately, many questions remain unanswered as archaeological excavation has largely been prohibited. And so, the 120 of these believers are gathered together in this upper room. There had been, up until this point, a lot of discussion about who would best fill the vacancy that Judas had left after betraying Jesus and hanging himself. But besides that, nothing else was really happening. The task that they had of reaching people for the kingdom seemed to be beyond them at this point. There was probably very little money and not a lot of people to show for three years worth of ministry, only 120 of them together. Here. There was probably a lot of fear and outside of their meeting place, outside of this room, was a whole city of people with a culture that seemed to have very little tolerance for their message of the gospel. At this stage, nothing was happening in them or through them that would have an impact on the world outside of this room that they were in. They were waiting for something that Jesus had promised them would come. But they weren't actually sure of what that experience would be like. What they did know, however, was that Jesus said that they would be empowered when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would then be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. The time that this was happening was the time of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. Pentecost was a kind of a harvest festival. It was the occasion when the first sample of the crops were brought in from the fields and it was therefore a time of great celebration amongst the people. It had also become associated with a celebration of God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was a big celebration in Jerusalem and the city would have been crammed with visitors who had come from many countries around. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 5, we are told that they had come from all the nations under heaven. And so these followers are there and they are up there in this upper room and they are waiting. And then suddenly they hear this sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the sound that they are hearing is not a centralized sound. The sound filled the entire house where they were sitting, the text tells us. Now, I think it's important and helpful to note the language that is being used to describe what is happening here. Now, in many ancient languages, similar to today's modern languages, there are words that can have more than one meaning. Now, in this case, the word used in the original language can mean either wind or breath. In the Hebrew, that word is ruach. It's one of those words that sounds like what it means. 
Ruach. In the ancient world, they thought of wind as being like breath, but on a large scale. And that's why it shouldn't surprise us then that they use the same word to describe the wind or breath or even spirit in that moment. Now what is interesting about this is that we actually have seen this way of describing wind and breath and spirit before in different parts of scripture. And so let's look at one. Let's look at the use of it in the book of Genesis right at the beginning. And we look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In Genesis here, God had created from the dust of the ground, from pure natural matter, a skeleton with organs, blood vessels, skin, hair, and all of the different components that would be needed. And then that corpse, that body, lay there, lifeless and dead. And then we are told that God breathed into this lifeless corpse his own breath. And Adam, at that moment, became a living being. Now if we put together what is described here for us in Genesis chapter 2 with what is described for us in Acts chapter 2, then we can see the significance of what is happening here. In Genesis chapter 2, there was a body, but this body didn't have life in it yet. And then God breathed into the body so that Adam became a living being. And now here in Acts chapter 2, there's another body. Because the church is the body of Christ. But it was until this point a lifeless body. It's like the corpse of Adam before God breathed into it. And so God was breathing his life into his body, the church here. And as he does this, the church is born. Now, if you are a Christian believer, think back to the moment, to the time that you made that commitment to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I think that many of you will describe that moment as being very significant. And you may use the language that Jesus used in John chapter 3 of being born again. That moment that God breathed new life into you by the power of his Holy Spirit. In that moment, something happened. Something shifted. You were converted. And when this happened to you, you became empowered as the Holy Spirit came upon you. And because of this power that has come upon you, 
you can now be a witness for him in Cape Town, in South Africa, and to the end of the earth. I want to remind you of this. Even now, as we face this worldwide pandemic, there is something that is different about you. To someone who hasn't come to the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now what is different is that you are now part of a body that has been revived. You are part of a body that has been empowered. You are part of a body that has become the righteousness of God. And also, you are part of a body in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. A body that may now feel hard-pressed on every side, but you are not crushed. You are part of a body that now may feel perplexed, but you are not in despair. You may feel persecuted, but you are not abandoned. You may feel struck down, but you are not destroyed. Because the creator of this universe has breathed his life-giving breath into you. This is the body called the church. And you are part of this body, the church. And so in that upper room, the Spirit of God came upon his people and filled them with life that was from above so that they were not simply an organization of men and women who believed certain things, but those who knew the life of God that had come upon them and gave them ability to do more than human things. And then as we look at the next verse in, in verse 3, it tells us that they also saw what is described here as tongues of fire coming to rest on each of them. But it says these tongues of fire don't burn them. Nobody's hair catches fire. If we think about where else we see fire appearing yet not consuming or burning something up, I think we can reflect on the occasion that Moses encountered a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses saw that though this bush was on fire, the bush was not being burnt up. It wasn't being consumed. And it was at this point that God revealed his presence from within that fire. And as we can remember from Exodus chapter 3, Moses was to take off his shoes because he was in the immediate presence of God and the ground that he was standing on was holy. The important thing about the fire Moses was witnessing is that it was a self-sustaining fire. Now every fire that you and I have ever seen depends on fuel. And when it burns up the fuel that is there, and there's no fuel left, the fire 
fizzles away and it goes out. But this fire that Moses saw there is not dependent on fuel. It does not depend on the bush to sustain it. That's why the bush doesn't burn up. The fire is self-sustaining. It never goes out. Now in Acts chapter 2 here, as the Holy Spirit in this form of tongues of fire came to rest on these believers in that upper room, God was making His presence evident in a very physical way, similar to what He did for Moses. As we know, one of God's attributes is His omnipotence or His all-powerfulness. God has life in Himself. God depends on nothing. He needs no one. God doesn't need a bush to keep His flame burning. God is self-existent and self-sustaining. The power of God that runs through us as His body is never-ending. And so when we exercise this power, we need not worry that we are going to run out of this power. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about how the power of God's love is everlasting. He writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Furthermore, the fruits of the Spirit, which are evidence of God's work in us, are elements that don't run out. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The more love you show, that love's not going to run out. The more kindness you show, you will not run out of kindness. The more goodness you show, it won't run out. The more of these elements we use, the more He replenishes, the more He gives. Kindness and generosity, which we will look at in greater detail later on in the series, is not dependent on how much you have in your pocket to give, but rather how much is in your heart. God's provision never runs out. Also, God gives His power and presence to all His followers in equal measure. In that upper room, on that day of Pentecost, all the disciples were present. And much of what we read about in the entirety of the New Testament, we hear about particular people that God used seemingly more so than others. 
Now, if I were to use that reasoning, then I wonder if some of the believers in that upper room thought to themselves, I wonder who the fire is going to come on. I wonder who God's going to anoint. It must be Peter. Or will it be James or could it be John? But do you see what happened? The scripture rather tells us that these tongues of fire separated and they rested on each one of those present. There are no favorites in the body of Christ, the church. Nobody is more important than someone else in the body of Christ. God has come and he has empowered all of his followers in equal measure. And so, those tongues of fire, they have fallen on me, and they have fallen on you. God's answer to the need of the world in the New Testament is not to raise up some new superhero like Moses, but to anoint every one of his people, every one of his followers, and then to send them out in ministry, each one participating in the life of the Spirit of God that comes upon us from above. Now there's much more that can be said about these few verses that we've looked at here, but we'll stop there for now. And so as I close, let me summarize with this. God has chosen you and he is with you now in your upper room. God has empowered you. His presence is with you as an individual and his presence is with us together as his body, the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you birthed us, that you have drawn us in. We thank you that as you have drawn us in, you have breathed your life-giving breath into us. Father, continue to remind us that we are your body. Continue to remind us that we are empowered by the power of your Holy Spirit. Continue to remind us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Remind us, Lord, that we are able, that we are able to endure by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.